0: Guys, it's been a rough year, it's gonna get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local Tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. Hey,
1: this is DeRay, and welcome to Bossy the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kai, and DR, as usual, talking about the news that you don't know from the past week, but news that you should know. And then I sit down with Mileti of the Tigray Action Committee to discuss the conflict in Ethiopia. My advice for this week is to go to your grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever is older in your family, Go to their house and take photos of the photos. Copy the photos, whatever it is. I think about my last visit to my grandmother's house and the photos were like in the basement. Me and my sister are scheduling a weekend to just go to grandma's house and make sure that we get the photos before something happens to them. Get the photos. Make sure that you keep them as such great photos. I think about all the pictures that my grandpa took of us uh, that I know exist, but like I haven't seen in a long time. Get the photos.
2: Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. Welcome back. Happy to have you. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger.
3: And I'm Sam Snyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter.
4: I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. I'm Dre at DIY on Twitter.
2: All right, y'all. We're we're coming to you during it's like day two of the Olympics. I think, but so excited to have been watching. I'm in Spain uh, for the next week or so, so I've been trying to watch as much as I can, given the different time zones. But what from what I've seen has been really exciting and really fabulous. You know, there's still a lot going on each day. We're hearing about somebody else that is tested positive for COVID and that can't participate, so obviously that puts a bummer on things. I'm also super excited to see Naomi Osaka play. I just finished watching her documentary that the amazing Garrett Bradley directed. So super exciting about these things. I'm glad to have a welcome reprieve from what the news cycle typically is.
3: I mean, it was pretty cool to see all of the opening ceremony, the festivities. You had Naomi Osaka lighting the torch, which was like, you know, a really powerful image to see. Um, And then you had all of the different sort of uniforms, right, I I hadn't really up until this Olympics really appreciated sort of the the ceremony itself and like the uniforms as like part of the ceremony, Um, but like seeing, you know, know, Ralph Lauren designed the American uniforms, which were like, in my opinion, a little bit bland. Like, clips <laughs> look like sailors like I don't know like is that like
4: they did I thought they looked. they looked a little French to me with the- yeah
3: <laughs> there was like a sailor outfit and like I was like this is a very like 1945 like you know like look okay but the, some of the other countries were really cool, right? So you had, like, Liberia had, like, an incredible outfit that they had designed. You had the Democratic Republic of Congo. You had uh, a whole bunch of, like, really cool and innovative sort of looks. And then, like, the U.S. was sort of just, like, standard. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> But that was, like, an interesting part of it. And then there was, like, the actual competitions themselves, which, like, I'll admit I haven't seen a whole lot of. I saw, like, a lot around the opening ceremony. There was, like a little bit less about like the actual like competition. I know we're still early in it, but like I haven't seen a lot of clips. I haven't like found it and like watched it online yet, so I'm still early in the game, but uh but I did see the ceremony.
4: I watched skateboarding last night, which is a fairly new Olympic sport, and it really my heart was in my chest the whole entire time cuz it just looks like stuff that you're not supposed to be doing, like skating on banisters and handrails and things but it was very interesting and then of course you know I'm rooting for everybody black and so watching all of these the treatment of black women in the Olympics like on the one hand I want to support black girl magic and I'm all in for Simone and Jordan and you know Quinn and Naomi and all of these other women and at the same time you know I'm watching with when I open, kind of skeptical about how black women are being treated at the Olympics. Um, and so it's sort of an interesting time. On the one hand, I want to feel patriotic. And on the other hand, you know, I'm a little skeptical.
1: It's interesting. I uh, One of the reasons why, Sam, you have not seen clips is that NBC apparently is not letting Olympic clips be shared on Twitter, which I didn't know. It's one of the reasons why none of us have seen really these clips because we're like out here doing all this stuff. And and there are no highlights like there are no that's it's just not it's weirdly not on Twitter right now and that was just such a I don't know what the business deal was but talk about a missed opportunity that is just an incredible missed opportunity I was shocked to see the USA men's basketball team lose the game against France. You're like, come on, y'all. And it was one of those things where I think that some of the players didn't get to the hotel to one it yet. Like, it was, you know, travel, all that stuff. But still, like, I didn't expect America to lose. And the first person to win a medal at all uh, for the U.S., uh, and it was a gold medal, is Chase Caliz, who is a Marylander uh, and is a Michael Phelps protege uh who won in the 400 individual medley so shout out to him because you know we're off to a good start with the gold there i'm excited to see what simone biles does i'm excited to see what the rest of the rest of everything and this is i think the first year that um is rock is this rock climbing's first
4: year
3: yep rock climbing and skateboarding and skateboarding yeah okay
1: cool kai you did see skateboarding
4: i did i watched it last night it was fascinating street skating and then the like, um, you know, the skate park-y kind of okay. skateboarding. Mm-hmm.
1: Was there a country that clearly mm-hmm. stood out to you?
4: Um, I mean, the U.S. is doing pretty good. The Japanese were fascinating. There's a French dude who was winning, who was the number one as I was watching last night. Um, and I will say that, like, you know, I'm like, come on, yo, we invented skateboarding. We invented basketball. We have, like, shouldn't we be dominated in the sports that we <laughs> Okay. My news this week comes from the city of Cleveland, uh, which whose baseball team changed its name to the Guardians after 100 years of calling themselves the Cleveland Indians. Um, as you know, across the country, we have watched the backlash and conversation and ultimately change uh, around indigenous names and mascots in our sports teams. And I thought this was an interesting story for a couple of reasons. Um, I think that number one, again, for a hundred years, this team has called itself the Indians. And for a very long time, of course, there was not any momentum to change the name. In fact, there's one activist named Philip Yengyo, who's been protesting outside of the stadium for 30 years to change the name. Um, but when the team decided to do it, They did it collectively and they did it um, very locally, which I think is an important way to think about change. While this is a national conversation, ultimately how you do things in your own community matters a lot. And so the team consulted with indigenous organizations like the National Congress of American Indians. They talked a lot about outreach to local Clevelanders in helping to figure out what the name was going to be that is extensive outreach to 40,000 fans. Um, they assert that the new name, um, has significant local meaning. The guardians are a pair of statues on a bridge that, um, is in Cleveland, that if you're local, you know a lot about it. If you're national, it doesn't have the same impact. Um, But I think action is where it's at, which is in local communities. And um, what I was really, I think, impressed by is local indigenous leaders' response to this. They could be salty about it. They could be, you know, it's about time, blah, 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 blah. But Suzanne Harjo, who's a Native American activist, said it's never too late to do the right thing. Other uh, folks from the National Congress of American Indians said it's a difficult but appropriate decision. And the team themselves said we're trying to be extremely respectful, and their goal is to represent the entire city. And I think that um, when we think about doing hard things that are inclusive, Um, this to me is an example that we can talk for a zillion years about what they didn't do right and all of that jazz. Um, But I think we need more examples of pathways forward together, uh, where we can acknowledge what we didn't do in the past and work together towards uh, a different future. And so my hat goes off to all of the folks, including sponsors like Nike and FedEx and Pepsi, who are putting pressure on teams to make these changes It actually it takes a village to make big change. So, uh, hats off to the Cleveland Guardians, and I wish them luck.
3: So, this conversation has sort of been ongoing for what seems like so long, right? I feel like it, you know we're talking about changing the name of a sports team, and like we've been talking about it for like years, and like finally they like went through this whole process, which is a, a necessary process. You described, Kaya, of like getting input, you know, what the new name should be, making sure that it's inclusive of the voices of people who. Uh, in particular were affected by the the racism of the first name. And so like again, like there's there's been a process. It's good that this has actually arrived at like a name, the Cleveland Guardians. It was also sort of interesting to see the reaction from like the right wing who are really mad about the name changing and saying that the Guardians isn't a good name. And it's like, you know, like I don't know, there's teams named after socks. Like there's there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. <laughs> and like You're gonna pick a fight about like the name Guardians, so so like I'm glad that they changed the name. It is like wild to me how long it took to do this, right? Like because this is the replacement of a name, but like the other institutional dynamics within the industry like remain present, right? There's like a lot of harder work to be done within sports in general, right, to make sure. Uh, that folks, particularly black folks, aren't just like players and not coaches and not team owners, don't have a real stake and power within like the actual industry. But like, you know, baby steps, I guess, like one step at a time. This is like a a change that is important. Um, And I hope that this will be an impetus for more changes within the industry. I know like this is an aside, but seeing that bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest come down uh, in Tennessee was like another sort of example of... Um, how these are sort of symbolic changes, but they matter, right? Like these are, this is replacing racist symbols and like the iconography of white supremacy in our landscape. So like, it's not a small thing, it does matter, but obviously there's a lot more work to do. So my news is about the Biden administration, uh, which, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, you'll recall that there was a lot of organizing and activism uh, at the local, state, and federal levels to reduce prison populations, jail populations, get folks out of jail, not only as a way to reduce incarceration, but also to reduce the spread of the pandemic. Uh, And so at the federal level, uh, about 4,000 people are currently on home confinement uh, who've been released from federal prison uh, and had gone through a whole screening process to make sure that they're eligible, that they had served good time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, are in communities, have already been released. uh, And now uh, the Biden administration has issued a uh, legal opinion uh, that essentially when the pandemic ends, when the emergency ends, they say that everybody who has been released to home confinement under that sort of pandemic authorization will have to go back to prison. Uh, And that's 4,000 people. So this is uh, obviously disheartening. It is a legal opinion. Right, it doesn't mean that the Biden administration can't act. For example, through executive clemency, uh, which would actually be able to keep folks out of prison, um, and Biden could do, you know, with uh, signing a piece of paper um, or an act of Congress, um, which could also help. Um, but this is obviously there's, this is a, a big deal in the broader conversation as we think about the pandemic, which is not going away. It seems, if anything, seems to be coming back. Um, but there are a lot of decisions that were made early on in the pandemic, not only by the federal government, but by a host of institutions um, that are now sort of slowly being unwound and reversed when it comes to reducing incarceration or policing. Um, and this is sort of the latest example of that. Uh, and I'm hopeful that, you know that this can be an, an opportunity to actually push Biden to use that executive clemency power that he has, he can use you know, broadly uh, to do without legislation, has not done, um, and could do it in this case to keep 4,000 people from going back to prison.
4: This is one of those things to me where there's an opportunity to lead very differently. You could lean on the letter of the law and say, oh, well, when the pandemic is over, whenever that is, our hands are tied and we just have to do this because this is what the law says. Or you can be creative in your leadership and do what you think is good and right for people. And I think that the Biden administration has an opportunity to lead differently. Uh, I think that Mr. Biden, in his campaign rhetoric, talked a lot about reducing incarceration and overhauling the criminal justice system. And I think this is one of those put up or shut up kind of times, right? There are ways you don't have to do a blanket commutation of the people. You can put a process in place where people are evaluated and whatnot. And so like, this is that bogus leadership BS where people are like, oh, we can't because policy says, or the law says, as DeRay said in the last thing, rituals are created by us, but laws and policies are created by us and process are created by us and this is a chance for this administration to do something different as far as i'm concerned
1: the other thing too is that just like as a matter of policy it doesn't make sense you're like you let the people go home they got jobs they reconnected with family they've like made lives and taking them back inside unadjusting them it's just like bad policy you're like that doesn't even like there's no data to show that they reoffended in big – like there's no – you're like there's none of that. And it just is a, – it's a weird thing where like if this was corporations, we would – like the corporations failed. They were going to go under if we did not bail them out. The banks failed. If we did not bail them out, they it would be no more. Like the rule – we bent all the rules. It's like this set of people – we let them out. They out, let them out. You know, like if anything, we should be giving them an extra stipend to make up for all the craziness when we almost killed them in jail with COVID, you know? So I don't, uh, this makes me, this disappoints me. It makes me sad. And also is like, you know, this might show the limitations of what it means to have good people on the inside. It's good people. We like the people in the DOJ. It's not, they're not even like people we're fighting against. We like Kristen. We like Vanita. Uh, we like Lisa Monaco. Like, Merrick Garland is a good guy, and it's just like, and, and yet still, you see these things happening. It's just like, I don't, I, I am at a loss. It's like, if we can't all agree that this doesn't make sense, it's like, what can we agree on? Don't go anywhere. More Potty of the People is coming. Potty of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from Work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down.
2: So my news today comes from Vice. It, well, the headline of it really caught me. That's really how I, I got here. But it was, do black women have to save the police too? Whoa. There's just so much to unpack there. But just in terms of like <laughs> where, where they were going with this, of the five women leading police departments in the nation's 30th most populous cities, four of them are black women. You know, this article talks about how, you know, a lot of police reform advocates are, are celebrating the shift in power and getting these black women in these roles. Um, and, you know, there's there's a belief that but it's also you know, it, it, fact um, when black women are in leadership, good things happen. With that though, understanding that black women, particularly in these roles as police chiefs, police commissioners, are still gonna face um quite an uphill battle when it comes from acceptance from their peers, particularly white peers, white male peers. The story goes on to talk about to just, you know, yes, you have some black women who have ascended to these roles, but black women are still disproportionately a small slice of police officers. Um, In 2021, there was a study from the Bureau of Justice Statistics that said that there were just 3% of full-time officers within all of the police force. You know, there's also indication, too, that women police officers in general, there's less incidents of them killing people. Less incidents, they still do, but um, less. So I don't know. I just wanted to bring this to y'all because I thought, you know, especially, you know, for you, Dre and Sam, just in getting your reactions to this, Um, And also, Kaya, just, you know, you being a black woman that has led a massive operation. The headline stuck with me from a very fundamental perspective. I do believe that a black woman leading anything makes it better. I also know that we can have black representation in office at the very highest levels of office and still not see the type of change that we need um, and deserve. So I don't know. You know, where are these women? They're in Louisville, Philadelphia. Memphis and Cleveland, I think, are the ones that this article. Oh Columbus, it's Columbus, not Cleveland, and in, in, in Detroit as well. And in, in Columbus, remember, we there was Micaiah Bryant, who was remember she was killed by that police officer the same day that the verdict for George Floyd came out. So anyway, you know, I just wanted to bring it to y'all, because I thought this was fascinating. And a real exploration of what leadership looks like and how we examine and hold leaders accountable, even when they're black and black women.
3: Thanks for bringing this to the pod, Tiara. You know, this is like a conversation around uh, the demographics of policing that has been going on for like a long time uh, as well. And there's been a lot of research looking into like the impact of for example, having a black police chief or sheriff compared to a white police chief or sheriff or uh, a given officer. Uh, and the research evidence is sort of inconclusive, right? It suggests, mm. to your point, Diara, that there can be some improvements when you have you know, police officers and folks who are in charge of police departments um, and sheriff's departments uh, that are black. Like There is a difference. Um, according to some of the research, right? So there was a study looking at sheriffs um, that was done by George Bowman, a researcher at University of California, uh, Santa Cruz. And he actually found, looking at places that had a change from a white sheriff to a black sheriff, um, found that when a black sheriff replaces a white sheriff, there was a decrease in racial disparities in low-level arrests. So like under a black sheriff, they were less likely to make arrests for a whole bunch of low level offenses, particularly of black people. So what the researchers suggested was that that indicated a different approach um, by black sheriffs compared to white sheriffs that resulted in less racial disparities, although still racial disparities, right? So so to your point, things are better, there's less, but like still, there are still problems, right? Um, and so that's also similar with research like Bakar Ba, uh, Another researcher looked at officer race uh, and found that officers are like, black officers were less likely to use force uh, against black people, um, less likely to arrest black people for low-level offenses and sort of these minor like, nonviolent issues um, compared to white officers, but still did so at, at, to a higher degree than they did for white people. So they were still acting in biased ways, just less than white officers were. So, like, yes, I think having more uh, black police chiefs, black women police chiefs, uh, you know, prosecutors, etc., um, can improve the outcomes and result in less of the bad things. But the bad things still exist, right? Like the systemic problems still remain, even when you change around like who's who the people are in those positions. So I'm hopeful that, yes, that some of those shifts that are already ongoing can continue to happen and can make a difference, but that that we don't stop there, right? That we don't think that that is going to solve the problem because the research says it won't, that the problem still exists even when you have a black sheriff, even when you have a black officer, et cetera. That's sort of what what comes to mind with this conversation that has to be like necessarily nuanced and complex because uh, the problem is complex and the solution has to be multifaceted too.
4: This made me go back to an article that I read a couple years ago. I found it again, and it was in the Huffington Post. And the title is Why We Hire Women and Minorities to Clean Up Our Messes. And it effectively says that whenever a company or a country or a department or anything is in trouble, they hire a woman and or a minority uh, to fix it. And so whether it is President Obama, who came in at, you know, during one of the worst recessions in history, um, or the woman at General Motors who came in after General Motors fell apart, there are countless examples of this happening in the corporate world. But the idea is that when things are about to go bad or when things have gone bad, you hire a woman and or a minority to fix it. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, on the I'm rooting for everybody black, and I believe deeply in the competence and magic of of black women as leaders, it's also pretty offensive and galling that you don't give these people a job. They're qualified for the jobs, right? And you don't give these people the jobs when you're passing out the candy to everybody else. But once things go bad, you look to them because you want to soften your image or you want to promote, you know, this sense of equity or because you just need help and black women get things done. And so uh, the phenomenon is called the glass cliff and there's research around it. I'm offended slightly. I, I watch it in the superintendency. Um, I've seen lots of cases where folks will mess up whole entire districts and then they call in the black woman or the, you know, they call in women to fix it. And, you know, we've got to one, we just need to stop with this garbage. And we need to give Black women their due. And I I hope that these women, I mean, these these police chiefs have put in the time, they're clearly experienced, and I wanna be happy for them, but I'm also like, damn, like, (laughs) why they gotta be, why we got to be the cleanup women? Why can't we just lead the way we want to lead? You know the song that's playing in my head, but we'll leave that where it is. Um, I mean, we, we, we have to do better with Black women's leadership. My
1: news is about Philadelphia, another wild story. So the short version is that there is a notoriously bad police chief, uh, Police Chief Rizzo, who was the police chief in Philadelphia for a very long time. It is not a secret anymore that he was corrupt. Uh, And while there's been really good work around exonerating people who are who were wrongfully convicted, uh, it seems like every year there are more and more people where it comes out that there were wrongful convictions that go back farther than people knew. And with this story in the Philadelphia Inquirer, it's called Sex for Lies. And essentially, there were a set of police officers who were getting incarcerated people to claim that they were witnesses or were told or knew something about other crimes to lock people up because the police were trying to just wrap up some cold cases and they were promised sex in return. So the police would take them down to the police department room, would bring... Either their partner or a sex worker in for them to have sex with. And that was the reward for false confessions. And what's even wilder is that there were some people who agreed to do this and then at the end were like, this is wrong, backed out. So they get up on the stand and then they don't cooperate. They say, you know, I'm not going to lie. And then the prosecutors actually charge them with perjury and they get these epically long sentences. That's the short version of this. The reason I bring this here is that even for the people on our side, even the progressives, the people who know the system's corrupt, I think people uh, don't understand how much credence we give to just the simple fact that like you got arrested or there's a charge like that just carries an outsized weight in most people's mind. So that's one. The second is that this story is just a reminder of how the police can't act alone. It requires a prosecutor who will prosecute you for perjury, even when they said the police made me tell a lie. That, like, the prosecutors actually participate in this, the judges participate in this. Uh, this whole sort of scheme and like who's actually protecting the victim? Like there are a lot of victims in this story. In this story, the people incarcerated are also victims. And like who is actually protecting those people, right? It's, it's, it seems like it's probably a reporter in this, but this is so far after it's happened. The third thing is I don't even know what the fix is besides like radically descaling the police But what I'm always amazed by with the police is actually you actually don't need a police officer in power to do bad things. So there are a lot of places where, like, you actually need, like, the leader has to endorse something really bad for it to scale, right? Like, in schools, I think about, like, an individual teacher can do a lot of bad, but, like, you know, schools are pretty open and da-da-da. There's a lot of people always around normally. I think about that when I was in the school system. It was like... There were a few incidents where like, somebody did something that nobody saw or knew anything about or da-da-da, but the police have such incredible power that one officer at the lowest rank can change somebody's life forever with no recourse, no appeal, No, I think about the appeals that came to me when I was in the school system. It was like people would say stuff and we'd look into it. We're like, nope, not suspend you for that. Like there were ways that we could get around people who lied or they would be investigated. It's like the police, you get one police officer who like just says something is true or not true. And that'll change somebody's life. And especially you think about poor people, the poorest people who like can't afford a lawyer, can't afford an expert who like might have made a mistake in their life before. So people are predisposed to believe that like they might be likely to do the bad thing that they're accused of now. Uh, it just it, It's just another reminder that like with the police, it doesn't require a high ranking person to do bad. Any of them can change people's lives forever.
3: I mean, thinking about like the level of discretion that the police have and the fact that they can do all of these things, not only is there no recourse, but like the law is designed to help them get away with those things and to make it hard to actually prosecute them or discipline them for for anything. And I'm thinking about in Illinois how next year officially uh, after because they passed legislation will become the first state to ban police, making it illegal for police to lie to kids. That's like the law. And it becomes the first state with the law making it illegal for police to lie to kids in an interrogation, which of course will have you know huge consequences for that kid's life, right? If if the police, I mean, we saw Central Park Five and like all of what happens when the police get kids to essentially, you know, they lie to kids, they frighten kids, intimidate them. They have all of this discretion. They could take you into a locked room for however many hours they want and get kids to confess to crimes they didn't even commit that could then have, you know, enormous impacts for the rest of their lives, for the rest of their family's life. Apparently, the law didn't even make it a crime to lie to kids in interrogation as a police officer. So good on Illinois for becoming the first state to make that a crime and make that illegal. But honestly, like that is, you know, that is wild. Um, the level of discretion that the police have. And DeRay, you, you, your example of like historically how many times these things have happened, like they're still happening, right? And we have no accounting of just the extent to which this is happening because it is swept under the rug. The law does permit this to happen. Um, and it's very hard to get even basic transparency into you know what happened because they erased the records also, right, so, so it's wild. Hey,
1: you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come.
0: The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote
5: Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee.
0: Guys, it's been a rough year Since America's election
1: night in 2020, there's been a war raging in Ethiopia's northernmost region. You probably have questions about it and don't know what's going on. I didn't. That's why I wanted to make sure that Melati came on the show today. She's from the Tigray Action Committee to explain what's happening on the ground and to tell us how we can help. Here we go. Melati, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People.
6: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
1: So I'm excited that you're here to talk about a topic that I know very little about. I've seen it on Instagram, I've seen it on Twitter, and I'm like, I don't know. Um, So can you help us understand your relationship with Ethiopia? Like, how are you a content expert? Why do you know anything about what's going on with the conflict? And then let's get to what's happening in Ethiopia right now.
6: Yes, so my name's Maleti, I live in Denver. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur. I own a social justice cafe in the city. And my whole birth story sort of explains what's happening right now in Tigray and in Ethiopia. So I was born in Sudan in a refugee camp because the same thing that was happening in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s is happening right now. And essentially the, the state of Ethiopia has turned on its people and is bombing its own citizens and has invited a foreign country in to attack its own citizens, those citizens being the people of Tigray. And so my parents fled as children, or not children, my my mom was a teenager, my dad was a young man. Um, They ended up in Sudan and and that's where I was born. And so now, fast forward, four decades later almost, those same camps are full again for the same reason. And what
1: is that reason? Like I've heard about the conflict in Tigray. I literally don't know what the conflict is. Some people have said it's genocide. Some people have said it's a civil war. You said this is a. Is this like the second wave? Is it something that happened before? Like, can you just like help us understand? I don't know why. What is the nexus of the conflict?
6: So at its core, it's an issue of a strong centralized form of government, or. An ethnic group being able to rule themselves and keep their culture and essentially survive and not be like taken over by a dominant culture. What that's turned into is a genocide on the people of Tigray. So I'm going to take you back just a little bit to um, what's called the Gero movement. There's a, a youth group that essentially protested in the streets of, of Ethiopia because of um, what they saw as unfairness to their ethnic group. They didn't think they had enough power. They didn't think Um, economically they weren't doing well there were a number of issues with this group and so they took to the streets and protested in mass essentially and this was uh, about three years ago three to four years ago and so what happened is the prime minister at the time did what literally no african leader ever does he quit he was like, I can't do this. This isn't working for me. He quit. <laughs> he was like, gotta go, gotta, He's go, like, I gotta okay. go. I can't handle this. And so, what happened next is uh, a man named Abiy Ahmed, who no one knew, although he was part of the inner workings of the previous government, EPRDF, was brought into power as the prime minister. So, he had an appointment and was supposed to get the people to an election. So, he
1: was supposed to be like the holdover because the guy left. And then somebody had to lead the government. So he was the somebody and he's supposed to get us to the real leader. Exactly right. Exactly.
6: So one quick backstory to that, though, Abiy Ahmed was appointed. His whole appointment was brokered in the United States by the Trump administration. Let me tell you, he also subscribes to the prosperity gospel that Mike Pence subscribes to. So this has been a huge issue in terms of what's been happening and the support that he's been getting. Okay, so that's just a little bit of backstory. So Abiy Ahmed is appointed. He's supposed to get the people to an election. Instead, he uses COVID as an excuse. Do you remember when Trump was trying to do that? (laughs) And postpones the election three or four times. The last time, it's like an indefinite. Suspension of the election. So the Tigrayans uh, decide okay, there's not going to be a national election, but per the Constitution, we have a right to do a regional election and so they hold a regional election they elect their leaders and so this you know and they and it's great there's all these photos of long lines you know do they
1: always elect leaders or is this new
6: yes no no they do they all the all the states there are 10 sort of like states in ethiopia that have their own regional governments that are stronger supposed to be stronger than the the central government is the is the structure we currently have and
1: that's, and that's, it's, that is how it's designed to be that way. It's there's supposed to be 10 strong regional governments correct, and correct. the federal government that just sort of like holds everything together a little bit.
6: Exactly. Right. That ties all these Got people. Got it. Okay. It. So the,
1: so the, the regional election in Tigray is not abnormal. It's nope. not. Okay. There we go. Okay. Got it. Yep. I'm nope. learning more in this Got little, it. we only been talking for <laughs> six minutes and I'm like, <laughs> school me. Okay, here we go.
6: Yes. So Tigrayans hold their election. There's great photos of it. They have observers that come in. They're like, you know, COVID protocol. They're spraying people's shoes. I mean, it's wonderful. They elect their leaders. But here's the problem now. They've made Abiy Ahmed look a little bit foolish because he's the one who comes in saying he's going to bring a democracy to Ethiopia and he's liberalizing the economy, essentially selling off national assets to foreign investors. But, um, you know, he's supposed to be this darling of the West, but he postpones elections while the Tigrayans hold elections. So this is a dilemma for him. So that was like the straw that broke the camel's back, essentially. So Abiy Ahmed decides now he's going to go to war with the Tigrayans. And so he mobilizes a lot of the rest of Ethiopia and people of different nationalities within Ethiopia to attack Tigray. Now, how do you do that? He can't say because they had an election. Right. So he has to make up this story. So he comes up with this crazy story that the Tigrayans attacked a federal base so that they look treasonous, right? They attacked a federal base. We can't let this fly. We've got to attack. Well, now in hindsight, you know, initially when it happened, a lot of us were dumbfounded. We're like, did this happen? Did they attack a base? I mean, you start to question even your own people. You know what I mean? You're like, goodness, y'all,
1: you're like, y'all sitting here like, come on, y'all. Now y'all know y'all shouldn't attack the base, right?
6: Right, and okay. so we're all like grappling with what actually happened and we don't know because at the same time that he starts this war, supposedly in response, to this attack, he also shuts off all the communication. So there's now no electricity, there is no internet, there are no phones. So you can't get any information out except for what Abiy Ahmed wants you to know. And what he wants you to know is they attacked the base, so we have to respond. So that's how he justifies this. Um, The problem with that now in hindsight is we have so much more information, including the fact that there had been movement of soldiers up to Tigray weeks before the attack happened, okay? I
1: did hear this. I didn't know any context about it, but I heard something about the soldiers. I did hear that.
6: They had been moving up weeks before the attack, the so-called base attack. So that's one thing. The other thing is we have now a U.S. senator on the record saying that they spoke with Abiy Ahmed about him wanting to go to war with the Tigrayans and the U.S. essentially trying to convince him not to do that before the attack, days before. But there's all of this information now that shows... This was premeditated. He had planned to attack the Tigrayans and the reason why is they didn't fall into the fold. So what Abiy Ahmed did is when he came into power instead of holding elections, he reorganized the power structures in Ethiopia and he created what he called the Prosperity Party. He basically told everyone, "Fold into the Prosperity Party and I'm your ruler, I'm going to be your king." That's not an exaggeration by the way. He literally said his mom had a dream that he would be king of Ethiopia. It's A literal thing that was said that people talk about all the time and that his actions show. So the Tigrayans were the only ones who said, No, we like the federalist system that we have in place. We're going to keep following the constitution so long as that constitution isn't changed, which it hasn't been, and refused to join the prosperity party. So he saw that as confrontational, and the election is what pushed them over the edge. Where are we today? So Abiy Ahmed says, We had to attack Tigray because they attacked a base, right? Even if the Tigrayans had attacked a base, that's a military attack. So If there was a proportionate military attack, that'd be one conversation. What happened instead is, Abiy Ahmed not only came into Tigray and attacked Tigrayans, but you had soldiers coming in from Eritrea, Eritrean soldiers, to come and help the Ethiopian government attack its own citizens. And as a result, you had massive looting, massive destruction of infrastructure. They were burning farmlands. They were looting institutions. They were looting museums, taking ancient, ancient artifacts massacres in churches, including in a town called Aksum, where the Ark of the Covenant is held, a town that I'm from, where hundreds and hundreds of people were massacred in a church. You had soldiers going door to door executing young boys because they said, we don't want you to grow up and seek revenge later. I would argue the worst, you had girls and women who were being raped, I mean gang raped by soldiers. And so you have an attack on the people. And so what happened is the people fought back. The Tigrayan people fought back because it was stay home and be killed or raped or watch your sister be raped or or watch your dad or grandpa being forced to rape his, his daughter or granddaughter, or it was go out in the field and have a chance to survive. And so Tigrayans in mass joined the resistance and came out and fought back against these soldiers. And what is what's Biden's team doing? Trump was largely silent. Right. Because remember, when this this started on election night in the United States, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was like you watching the election, watching Trump lose, feeling really good. And then I had a friend come over and she was in tears. And I'm like, no, don't worry. Trump's losing. You know, and she's like, no, the, the Ethiopian government has bombed Tigray. And I'm like, what do we do? And we had no we couldn't call. Everything was shut off. Everything was just, you know, we couldn't get through. So we didn't know what was happening to the people. So. Under Trump, right, because he still had some time after he lost, nothing was happening. And so we were frustrated here in the diaspora. You have Tigrayan youth who took to Twitter. Let me tell you, Twitter saved us because we took to Twitter. And I'm talking about thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of young people who, you know, when you're fighting for love, when you're fighting for the love of your family, when you're fighting because you can't reach your grandmother like I couldn't you're doing it day and night, 24 seven, and you're never getting tired. And so it was interesting too, because there were all these uh, pundits and people who try to analyze what's happening. And they would say things like, oh, these are bots, or these are people working for the government, you know? <laughs> and so there was actually a story in the Washington Post that analyzed it to see like, are these bots? And then came back and said, man, these are real people. <laughs> and they were, it was us. It was us in the diaspora all over the world fighting for our families. It's- Fortunately, by the time Biden got you know, got into office, which felt like forever, because we've been fighting this genocide now for 226 days. When Biden came in, there's been a lot of great conversation and a lot of great talk about how this is wrong, how you can't attack the people. You can't bomb a market on market day, which happened, by the way, in a town called Togoga. So, you know, all of the talk was there. There have been sanctions finally on the Ethiopian government and the Eritrean government, but it hasn't stopped. No one has come in to help the people. And so what happened is the people had to fight back for themselves. And if the people didn't do that and if they didn't save themselves, no one was coming. That's what we learned. No one was coming to help them. And so they've been able to physically, you know, free themselves, at least in most of Tigray. But the problem now is there's no food. All of the roads have been blocked. And there had been the roads have been blocked for a couple of years leading up to this. But the roads have been blocked, so there's no food in the in the state of Tigray. You said there were ten regional governments. Mm-hmm. What are the nine other people doing?
1: What are, are they? Are they watching it happen? Are they upset about it? Are they like, what's up?
6: It's a mixed reaction. So a couple of things. The information is so controlled. You still have state-run media in Ethiopia. They've kicked out most of the foreign journalists. So I would, I would argue, and this might be unpopular, but I would argue that most people don't know the full extent of what's happening in Tigray who are in Ethiopia, right? And I'm not making excuses for them because they should know. They they could Google, they can look stuff up, but that's one thing. There's a huge disinformation campaign from the government themselves about what's actually happening in Tigray. So that's a big problem. And then you have some people who are warmongers, You have certain tribal groups who are warmongers and have, you know, some kind of beef with the Tigrayans who were the predominant party in the last form of government. And so they're like, "Ah, who cares? You know, (laughs) you get what you you get what you get kind of attitude. And so and then you have some people who are speaking up. I would argue that. Um, The largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, the Oromo, are pretty divided. And because they've been historically oppressed and were violently conquered and brought into Ethiopia, they have a different perspective. And so a number of the Oromo community have been advocating to end the Tigray genocide, essentially, and have been by our side. So it's been a real mixed reaction. And actually, it's good that you asked that, because that's actually been a real troubling thing for us, especially in the diaspora. Because as Tigrayans, we always consider ourselves Ethiopian. We didn't consider ourselves Tigrayan first. We were Ethiopian first. And what this has taught us is that Ethiopians see us as Tigrayans first. And so, we, you know, there are, there are people who I organize with to get Obama elected, you know, at our cafe. We work to help elect, you know, get progressive candidates in office. And people that I've worked side by side with on Black Lives Matter issues turn around now And deny everything that's happening and won't speak up for our families and won't stand by us when we're protesting. I mean, we're out in the streets in a different city, a different state pretty much every other week since this started. And we can't get non-Tigrayan Ethiopians to join us. And so it's been real eye opening, you know, that identity sort of crisis. I think that a lot of Tigrayans are having now of like, you know, being an enemy of your state because of your ethnic identity, being a target of your state.
1: Who is the biggest pressure on Ethiopia? Like, who has the juice?
6: I would say the United States. I would say the United States. And so what's happened in the last couple of years, and especially now, uh, the economy has been declining. So this prime minister really doesn't know. He doesn't have what it takes to run a country. He doesn't have the experience. It's been a disaster. Like, inflation has continued to rise. Business has continued to feel like it's a bad situation in Ethiopia, even much worse than it was, which, you know, led him into the position that he's in. And so now with the United States having sanctioned Ethiopia and sanctioned some of the top leaders, it's made it even more worse. And I think the Europeans are following. And so, you know, I would say the money, the purse is definitely um, having a big impact on what's happening in Ethiopia. But Russia has come to the rescue. So Russia is now backing the prime minister. And wait, Russia's wait, 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 Russia's backing the prime minister. I thought we didn't like this guy. Russia is backing the prime minister of Ethiopia.
1: Oh, I thought Russia was helping the people out. Okay.
6: No, come on, no, Russia. Russia is not helping the Tigrayans. Russia has come to help the prime minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed. And so there's a number of things going on. There are natural resources that have recently come to light, um, especially in the Tigray region. So let's not underplay that in terms of like shale oil, gold, sapphire, that kind of stuff. So, you know, that plays a role in this. Canada has a bunch of permits that they've taken out to do some mining in Tigray, which has largely been untouched. And so I'm sure natural resources are playing a role in this. The fact that you have a prime minister now that's opening up the Ethiopian economy. One of the criticisms of the past regime was that everything was closed off to the international world. So literally things were state owned. If you wanted to um, build or own own land in Ethiopia, you had to partner with an Ethiopian. So there were all these things in place that were not as beneficial for foreign investors. And so now you have this darling of the West, Abiy Ahmed, who came in and literally just opened everything up and started selling national assets like the telecom and you know privatizing things, which was needed by the way, things needed to be privatized, but they could have been privatized to Africans, not to foreigners. There's all of this foreign interest in the Horn of Africa and they'll say the stability of the Horn of Africa, but it's really the control. Over what's happening in the Horn, and don't forget the water issues with the Nile and damming the Nile, and now Egypt and Sudan are are have partnered and are, and have some controversy with Ethiopia over who should control the the Nile water. And so, there's a lot that's happening in the region, and and the people are you know dying as a result are an afterthought of all of this. What can people do? There's a number of things that people can do. First of all, I want to kind of humanize this and bring it back down and tell you that these are our literal families. You know what I mean? This isn't like some group of people far away that, you know, no one knows. It's literally... In the last famine, I lost my great-grandmother, to starvation. I didn't even learn that until now when the talks of a man-made famine were, were coming back. And actually, we're in a man-made famine right now in Tigray because, you know, the government won't allow food agencies, the World Food Program, to deliver food into Tigray right now. So they're blocking the roads. They're, bl- they're having to do airdrops. I mean, it's insane that we're even having this conversation. But I lost my great-grandmother in the last famine. And now my grandmother, my kid's great grandmother is in Tigray. Is she hungry? Is she starving? Does she have anything to eat? I don't know. Has she been attacked by soldiers? Has she been looted? I mean, we can't even reach our families to ask these very basic questions. I know, for, I know that I've lost at least nine family members up until this point, including a cousin who was beheaded by Eritrean soldiers in Adwa. So I have a young cousin also in Tigray who was raped by an Eritrean soldier and is now pregnant. And that might sound like, oh, you know, like a one off thing, but it's not. There are so many women now who have been raped and gang raped and are now carrying their rapist babies. And so for a state of like Tigray and and a country like Ethiopia that claims to be very pious, you know where abortion is largely unheard of or done secretly you have all these women who are coming out to say i don't want this baby and it's so it's sad on so many different levels because you know for the woman you know who maybe didn't even believe in abortion and now she's in that situation where she is a- demanding an abortion can she even get access there's no electricity there are no hospitals medicine has been looted everything's been destroyed so can she even safely get one for the babies that will either be aborted or that will be born and not wanted now. I mean, what's happening to the women is so severe and so awful that um, it warrants everyone's attention everyone's attention. This is a human issue. You know, I just want to bring it back down to that because as a Tigrayan, I haven't slept in 226 days wondering what's happening to my family and what's happening to the girls and what's happening to these women. And people try and distract and tell you things like, oh, these are terrorists. They're traitors. They attacked a national base. And I'm like, step back from that for a minute. There are no two sides to rape. There are no two sides to starvation. There are no two sides to genocide. So stop whatever those political things are, whatever those conversations are, let's have those conversations, but there is no way you can justify what's happening to the people in Tigray right now. You know, we've been attacked since we've come out and, called out our friends who are not Tigrayans. I mean, I'm telling you, Dre, I get text messages, threats, like, oh, I'm going to come for you. People know where my business is. They'll text me like the first four digits of my address on my house. You know, in other words, like I know where you live. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, you're, you're raping elderly women. So what could you do to me? What could be worse than that? Come, come to my house. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I'm not, I don't say that with bravado, but I'm just saying, What could be worse than what you're doing to the people in Tigray? What could you possibly do to me? So, what can people do? We need we need people. Number one to be educated on what's happening. Hashtag Tigray genocide. It's that easy. I mean, you could learn more than you ever thought just by looking at that hashtag. Um, Follow some of the some of these leaders who are, and they're largely young people who are advocating and fighting for their families. You can go to uh, there's a website tigrayactioncommittee.com where there are lots of action items. From you know, you can tweet text or whatever it's called. You can contact your legislators. There are petitions you can sign. There are Tigrayan-led organizations that you can donate to and contribute to. We've had celebrities come out. We had um, Erica Badu come out and talk about this and say, I don't care because, you know, they come for you. Once you start talking about this, other Ethiopians will come for you and they'll probably come for you too and say, well, you're helping these terrorists. And she just flat out came out and said, women are being raped. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? And to be able to say, stop, stop and look at what's happening. And that was huge, just sharing her platform, you sharing your platform right now. We need more of these conversations. We need more people to pay attention. We need to demand an end to a man-made famine because millions of people will die. And it's hard for people to think of millions of people in big numbers, but I'm talking about my grandmother. I'm talking about my cousins. I'm talking about... If you know a Tigrayan, there's not one single Tigrayan who hasn't been impacted, either from a rape within their family, a death within their family, not being able to reach their family. I mean, it's the largest and probably most hidden conflict in the world right now. Not my words. You know, people who follow genocides. This is their words. And rape is the signature of this genocide.
1: Is there a website people can go to for more information?
6: Yes. Tigrayactioncommittee.com.
1: Well, we consider you a friend of the pod. I have learned more in this last 30 minutes than everything I've read online. So thank you. Can't wait to be back.
6: Thank you. Appreciate you. Well,
1: that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilber and mixed by Bill Lanz. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe.